Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Michael David Fox on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Showcasing the Great Experiment, Cultural Diplomacy and Western Visitors to the Soviet Union, 1921-1941. to I recall when I first went to the Soviet Union in the 1980s. I went as a student to the Pushkin Institute. Our hosts were very careful to show us many of what they conceived of as the cultural and economic highlights of Soviet life. And if I recall correctly, I remember being tremendously underwhelmed because everything there seemed to be quite dingy. Most everything was out of date and out of order and of generally poor quality. This despite the efforts of our minders to make a good impression on us. I didn't know what to think because at the time, I thought that socialism might be the ticket. It confused me very much. As Michael David Fox shows in his book, it confused Western travelers to the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s too, during the period of socialist construction. On the one hand, they were wined and dined and shown the various victories of socialist labor by their Soviet minders and David Fox explains exactly how this was done in great detail using heretofore neglected archival sources. But on the other hand, they really couldn't hide what was going on, and that was that they were in the process of constructing really a despotic society, and one that would be in many ways terribly poor and shabby. Now, of course, many of these Westerners chose to ignore what they saw, and rather they believed what the Soviets were telling them, or they believed in the project itself, that is socialism. And when they returned home, they wrote about the future as they saw it in the Soviet Union. Well, thanks to David Fox, we understand for the first time exactly what happened to them, what they did in the Soviet Union when they were there, and how the Soviets tried to convince them that, in fact, socialism was the future. And in that way, the book is a terrific contribution, and I recommend you read it. I enjoyed talking to Michael today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Misha. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Just fine, thanks. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking with Michael David Fox about his terrific new book, Showcasing the Great Experiment, Cultural Diplomacy and Western Visitors to the Soviet Union, 1921 to 1941. A long, long time ago, I wrote a book about Westerners, although they weren't called Westerners at the time, who visited Muscovy, which is known as Russia now, and I have to say that my book was not nearly as good as Misha's. This is a really terrific read. Uh, uh, Misha is a great uh, writer. He has a gift for expression. He has a gift for making things complicated, understandable, even to dullards like me. Also, he has done something that I wish more historians would do, and that is he's found something new. <laughs> I read a lot of history books, and in many cases, I don't really learn a lot. But in his book, I learned a tremendous amount about what the Soviets did to 
impress upon foreigners uh, what they were doing and then what the foreigners brought in terms of baggage and what they brought away. Uh, it's a really uh, terrific read. I encourage you to uh, go out and buy it and take a look at it. Uh, even if you think you know a lot about Soviet history, you, you will learn quite a bit, as I did. I supposedly knew a lot about Soviet history, but apparently I, I didn't. And I want to thank Misha for writing the book. So, uh, Misha, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a few words about yourself. Okay, but first I have to say, Marshall, that that means a lot to me, because your book was and remains, I think, the book on visitors in a much earlier period, and I learned a lot from your work, and I cite it in my yes, you do. book as well. But, Thank you um, very much. You know, I, I, um, I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, and um, my mother is a historian, and I think, you know, I might have denied it earlier in life, but <laughs> looking back now, I really think that that made a difference for me, because when I was a kid, there was she told me a lot of stories related to, relating to history, and there was a lot of history in our house. My father was a, a professor of law, and my brother has become a professor of law, and so we had this conversations about, you know, seeing the world through the lens of law, which is legal scholars tend to interpret things through kind of uh, the letter, the, the interpretation of the law, and seeing things through history, how, how things work in practice. And my sister, my twin sister, became a, an anthropo- cultural anthropologist. So we had a lot of academics in our family, um, in any case, I, um, my grandfather, I should say, came from the Russian Empire, from what is now the far western Ukraine. But Russian was, he was a native speaker of Russian. I didn't know that. And, yeah, and, um, you know, but I don't know, that wasn't really the reason I went into Russian history. I got, in, I got to Princeton in the mid-1980s, and Perestroika was being launched, right. and... Um, you know, there was a huge interest in what was going on in the Soviet Union. Princeton was a rather extraordinary place for Russian studies at that time. You know, Stephen F. Cohen and Robert Tucker in political mm. science, yeah. uh, Richard Wartman in history. But I, it was true that I slept through my French exam, and I had to. Ch- I decided to just choose a foreign language, and I chose Russian. And I, that may, you know, may have had something to do with the grandfather. But Russian language at that time, we had some very serious teachers. Um, they were from Russia, and um, they. Uh, I had to choose. The, I just had to choose another foreign language, and um, and it was. I chose Russian, and when I when I decided that it was just so much of a time commitment that I got hooked mm-hmm. on everything Russian. Um, so we had these teachers from you know um, Veronica and Nikolaevna Dolenka and uh, Evgenia Konstantinovna Tucker, who was Robert Tucker's wife, and mm-hmm. they were you know Russian teachers of the old style. How should I say? They tried to purge the class <laughs> of weaker students. <laughs> And we also had a great linguist there, um, uh, Townsend. So when I made the commitment to the language, that everything else sort of flowed from that. Um, I got my PhD from Yale, um, and at that time I, w- I-, I got a perspective on early Russian history from Paul Bushkovich. 
Uh, Katarina Clark is was there, and she's just written a book that's, I think, very complimentary to mine. But I was also doing a lot of work at Columbia, going into New York and seeing Mark von Hagen. I took Leopold Hamsen's seminar. So I, I was kind of uh, involved with the whole uh, uh, group at Columbia as well. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the 90s, you know, everything opened up. The Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, the opening of the archives was a tremendous boost to the field, and I, I spent a lot of the 90s making very frequent trips uh, to Russia. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where the origins of this book lie in the sort of mid to late 1990s when I was going there every year mm-hmm. as a Western visitor, I should say, and saw some of the really the reactions I was getting, and I. I, I, uh, I, I, I wanted to investigate what the historical roots of this fascination with, but also competition with the West, and was as embodied by Western visitors like myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we talk about the origins of the book, I want to go back to something that I think I remember. I'm not sure. And this is an anecdote that you told me about being at Princeton and meeting your wife at, I can't remember where it was, but I want to say it was like a meeting of the young Spartacus or something. What, what was no, it? she likes to tell that story. <laughs> that? In fact, you know, we, she, she likes to say that our first date was we went to see Gus Hall, oh, yes, exactly. who was the head of the American Communist Party. And he did give a talk at Princeton, and I do remember being there with her. I'm not sure I considered it a date, though. She remembers that. The fact was that my wife, um, <laughs> my wife, my wife was a, 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 a at Princeton. I lived across the hall from her. Okay. And we did. A, she took Russian. <laughs> she worked on the Daily Princetonian. I'd say, you know, so we saw each other quite a bit, and we had a lot in common. Um, but. And then she went into Czech history, mm-hmm. and now she works for the State Department in the Division of Cultural and Academic Affairs. Mm-hmm. And this actually comes into my book because, you know, I mentioned that the United States came late to cultural diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Well, her division was founded in 1938, yeah. which was, of course, much later than what the Soviets were doing and other countries were doing in terms of cultural diplomacy. So she, it's actually kind of uh, ironic that she works there now. Mm-hmm. The only reason I mentioned this anecdote is because I sometimes tell my students that uh, I was a socialist in college. And to them, this is like saying you're from Mars. But to me, I think it adds a, you know, I, I was part of that earlier generation of people that really, I don't know if I believed in the great experiment, but I was happy to associate myself with it in the 80s, you know, and it, it's a, I, and, you know, it's a sort of a blessed thing to be able to remember that time because it really, it, to me, it it demonstrates that. It's it's very hard to judge people uh, is, who who lived in another time for for what they did. Now, of course, we have to, but you know, I it's just, I think it's an interesting thing. Well, it is hard to recapture that interest in you know even if it's if not the Soviet system itself, but in something called socialism. Yeah. I remember that too, and that was actually you know I mentioned it wasn't my grandfather that brought me into Russian studies. There was a large political element. I was interested in our Cold War enemy, yeah. and I was interested in what was meant by socialism, whether it be communism mm-hmm. or some other form. And that was, you know, that was those, those, that's also one of the reasons why I um, got interested in this topic about Western visitors. Because in some ways, now the debate is not so much about socialism, it's about why the visitors mm-hmm. could believe, or why Western 
intellectuals and observers could have believed in that, mm -hmm. even when it was at the height of the, the Stalinist madness. Mm -hmm. And so it's a proxy for the earlier debates about socialism. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's, I think that's exactly right. Uh, but I think it's just a valuable perspective I can bring to my teaching and also to some of my writing, because I, I remember another worldview, another entire world, really. That, that, that world is gone now. To my students, the idea that you would be a socialist is really so bizarre. That, that I can hardly believe it. Um, but and I, there's another level here is that a lot of people read the early Soviet Union through the late Soviet Union when no one yep. believed in the ideology. And what it, the, the Western enchantment had, had passed, especially after 56 with Khrushchev's secret speech, but there was still huge interest in it as a model for modernization mm -hmm. in a lot of the rest of the world. And so, but it's important to kind of try to recover that historical moment where it was almost a fashion. It was a fashionable thing for Westerners to be interested and make the Soviet tour mm -hmm. and go to the country and and report back to large audiences. I mm -hmm. think that was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. The book market was there for people who could just churn out a travel log <laughs> or their commentary. And so, it, there, you know, this was the part of the mainstream mm -hmm. interests of. You know, the, for mass audiences. Right, go see the revolution. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of the book. How, how did you come to write it? You've already mentioned a few things, but let's uh, get down to uh, some detail. Well, um, you know, basically, as I said, I was spending a lot of time in the so in the so in post-Soviet Russia right after the collapse of communism. I was pretty much there almost every single year in the nineties, and I finished up my first book which was in 97, and it was on the uh, higher party education and communist party schools because you couldn't write about stuff like that without the opening of the archives. And I was in the reading rooms of the, the former Soviet archives, and they were putting out lists of declassified materials that were it sort of reached the declassification reached its height in the mid 90s and one of the thing the big collections that was declassified was formed the core of this book when i discovered this collection it was the uh, huge archive of the all union society for cultural ties abroad which is known by its russian acronym vox and for one thing i realized that this was a huge collection that no one had seen. At least there was there was a there was an open part, but there was a, a classified part that no one had seen. And it also I turned out to have all these interesting sources. Soviet bureaucratic sources can be really dry and dull, but this had letters from foreigners. It had reports on the foreigners. It had the guides and the translators interacting with the foreigners, and it also had stuff in foreign languages that I could read, like French and German mm -hmm. and English. Mm -hmm. And so I had toyed with the idea of going back in time and looking at, you know, the 19th century, but this was too good to pass up, yeah. and that was one big... So I, instead of sort of creating a, a book to fit some theory, I, I created the theory to fit a new sources that I had found, mm -hmm. and, um, and that really goes back to the way I was... Uh, trained at mm -hmm. Yale to, to, to go to the sources. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, you may remember that we founded a journal in 2000 yep, called Kritika, um, <laughs> Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. And, and, and the goal was to kind of internationalize the field. And in Soviet, especially, the, um, 
the field had been a little insular. It was huge in the United States. There was a large discipline of, of a large group of scholars, but for you and I counted up the number of non-English books reviewed in the Slavic Review in the late 90s, and there were almost none. And I was going back and forth to Russia. I wanted to see interaction with the new generation of Russian scholars there. We wanted to open it up to Europeans. And so the agenda in my book was sort of to, to, to open up and capture this international dimension to early Soviet history and that corresponded to all the work I was doing on yeah. the journal at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's a ter- terrific story. It's a terrific story. Um, one of the things I really like about it is that you uh, were opportunistic. You you saw something that was newly available, and you uh, threw caution to the wind and um, pursued it. Actually, you know uh, who did this as well was Steve Jobs of Blessed Memory. There's <laughs> yeah. this famous story about him going to, I guess it was Xerox Park, and seeing the first. Uh, graphical user interface, and he basically went back to Apple and said, uh, we're not doing what we're doing anymore. Now we're doing something different. <laughs> People looked at him like, what the hell? <laughs> and the rest is history. I don't know if I should take that comparison as a compliment, because oh, so much stuff is coming out about jobs now, yeah, but well. I think you're right in that, um, you know, it took, it was a, it was a leap because, you know, to read to actually systematically work through this one collection. The, the, the book looked at a lot of other collections, but I had to make eight research trips that yeah. added up to a total of two years. Yeah. So instead of churning out a quick book, which some people more and more like to do, I this was something that took me, you know, um, almost 15 years mm-hmm. to research and write. Now, I was doing a lot of other things mm-hmm. in those years, but it, it, it certainly was an investment mm-hmm. of a lot of, of time working in the sources. Right. I mean, I don't think people, most people have an understanding of what it's like to work through an enormous catalog of things like this, especially when there is virtually nothing written about it. There. They're really, it's a little bit like orienteering. You know, you're just dropped in the middle of something and you really don't know what's around you. Uh, so I can easily imagine how it could take that amount of time. And, you know, you are a, uh, I don't think, well, I, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I don't think most of the work that my colleagues do, and I would include myself here, uh, 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 constitutes a very good, um, uh, uh, a very good defensive tenure. But yours does. <laughs> because, you, know. you know, it's important to notice there's not always a short-term payoff. The yeah. one thing I will say about this archive is that, you know, the Soviets, it's possible to think of them as, you know, especially in the visitor, the literature on visitors, which was written by non-Russianists, saw them as, as, as these sort of masterminds, these Machiavellian types who controlled everything. And mm-hmm. there was this unprecedented urge to do things that hadn't been done before in terms of, you know, interventionism and tracking foreigners and creating a system to show them, which was really, as I argue in the book, unprecedented. But there was also this whole Russian um, uh, tradition of rather of chaos, of doing things at the last minute, and of um, misunderstanding uh, of foreign cultures. Uh, uh, and so a lot of that is reflected in the archive where they simply took huge chunks of paperwork by date and I think just shoved them into folders. Mm-hmm. And so you have to sift through a lot of stuff to get to the good stuff. Yeah. And that's why this 
you know, a lot of people have used this archive, but not that many people mm-hmm. have gone through it sort of relatively systematically. But I had to make decisions. Too. I decided to, early on, I couldn't do the whole world. I, had, I did some comparisons with visitors from, say, Turkey and China, non-Western countries, but the Soviets were mostly interested in the West at that time in terms of trying to affect, influence public opinion. And so I was looking at Central and Western Europe and the United States in mm-hmm. particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's turn to the book itself. I like the way that it opens because it puts it in uh, the framework of a question which every Russian historian and anyone interested in Russia would know, and that is the question of Russia and the West. This is kind of a stock phrase. Uh, sometimes I think it should be hyphenated, you know, like Russia and the West. That's one word. Um, and, and one of the things you note that I hadn't, hadn't really occurred to me is, is that there's this great reversal of uh, Western attitudes toward Russia after the revolution. Prior to the revolution, most Westerners thought of Russia in kind of disparaging terms. Not all by any means, but most. However, after the revolution, it, great section of the Western intellectual elite thought of uh, Russia or the Soviet Union in this case in rather more positive terms. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, 1917 and the image of the Russian Revolution was, I think, important in sort of world, global terms, in terms of what people thought about Russia in, in, in at least two ways. One was that a non-Western country in Russia, and certainly the Soviet Union with its anti-capitalist ideology could at least be seen as an alternative to the West. But this was one of the first, if not the first, non-Western country to be seen in such broad terms, in positive light, in some ways more advanced politically and economically in terms of the image among sympathizers and among a number of others. So this was a sort of unprecedented shift from being being seen as one of the most backward countries of Europe to being seen in certain ways as more advanced. And um, but as you say before, the one thing that's you know I remember from your book, Marshall, is that there were certain Western European figures who also, for whatever reason, portrayed Russia as even long before 1917 mm-hmm. as as better, whether it was, mm-hmm. it was mostly because of the, um, the preservation of the autocracy and mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, uh, but what's happening after 1917 is that by and large, the tide turns and there's this enormously positive view in the West, starting in the early mid twenties, especially, but really with the depression and the five-year plan really peaking in the, in the, in the mid thirties before the purge era. But that goes along with these older notions that Russian society was backward. So some liberals could say, well, the Soviet Union is modernizing this backward society. They have to use brutal methods, but it's modernization. So, they incorporate these older attitudes, or they could still look down on uh, Russian and Soviet culture, and uh, to a certain extent in the 20s, uh, economics. And so it was a strange, the balance had shifted, but it was still a complicated mixture. So even some of the figures we associate as really pro-Soviet sympathizers, in fact, almost all of them have this lingering notion of um, Russian and Russian backwardness that comes from an earlier age. And so what I'm trying to do is sort of complicate the notion of a clean shift 
mm-hmm. before and after 1917, showing it was there was a, it was several strands of of perceptions going on on on, on in in both periods actually. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you open the book with a wonderful story about Theodore Dreiser that I think proves this point beyond uh, any doubt, and that is. And Dreiser goes there, and well, you can tell the story. He doesn't like what he finds until he sees one thing, and then he likes. Well, Dreiser is actually a really a good example of this because he later became a fellow traveler. In the '30s, his books were printed in Russian translation and millions of copies. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up trying to join the Communist Party, and they actually let him in a year before his death in um, in the '40s. But in the '20s, he was kind of you know he he went there. Um, he had a complicated view because, but he had the, he epitomized this notion of um, you know the continuation this this phenomenon of Western views of Russian backwardness persisted, and you know he still viewed the Slavs and Asians <laughs> and the East you know sort of ignorant and lazy, but he approved of the Bolsheviks because they were modernizing them, and the, you know so he he hated a lot of what he saw in his trip. And he complained constantly, and yet, he, and he actually defended aspects of the United States while he was inside the Soviet Union. But then, when he got back, he decided on basically self-censorship. He was going to, and he talked about the Soviet Union being uh, the United States was going to be Sovietized, and he sort of forgot about all the problematic things he saw. And but he did. I think it uh, it uh, it. it basically epitomizes this phenomenon of people who thought that socialism would not involve the level of violence and coercion at home or propaganda at home, but they approved of it in, in the Soviet Union because it was modernizing mm-hmm. backward Russia. Yeah, right. Right. He sees a, and you call it, I was interested in this, I, I, I just want to ask you, he, he claims to have seen a, a sky, skyscraper in Kharkiv, or Kharkiv, as we should call it now, right? Yeah, well. Yeah. What is that building? That I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure it was one of you know this, this was one of the buildings that new Soviet buildings that yeah. were being put up. But I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, that's true. I mean, by skyscraper, I don't think they yeah. mean like a real skyscraper. Yeah. It could just be like a, a, a twelve or fifteen. Yeah, twelve story or fifteen story building. That's exactly right. But he does. Yeah, once he sees that, it's like he's seen the, you know the True Cross or something, and he's like, wow, this is great. But it's almost like yes. I mean, there's an element of projection here too, and that that was actually brought out in a lot of the earlier works, that people saw what they wanted to see. Because the Soviet Union had changed so much in different periods from the new economic policy of the 20s <laughs> to the you know forced industrialization. It had gone through these sub-periods. And so all sorts of different Westerners saw in it what they wanted to see, mm-hmm. to the extent that even, you know, the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury was a fellow traveler, yeah, although is, the Soviet Union was, uh, was highly anti-religious. <laughs> or pacifists saw one of the more militarized countries of the world yeah. as epitomizing some of their ideals. So, mm-hmm. so each person, this is what Fure, uh, Francois Fure called the myth of communism. People saw what they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is strongly there. You have, that's why you have to study the backgrounds of these people, what they bring to their Soviet tour. Mm-hmm. But I tried to argue in this book that it also really made a difference what their concrete contacts with representatives of the Soviet system were and also what they did while they were in the country. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people for whom this visit 
was a decisive episode in their lives. Some, of course, you know, like Bernard Shaw, I put in this category, they breezed in for a couple of weeks. They knew they were going to praise it in advance. They didn't really see all that much. But there were a number of others for whom even short-term visits were, you know, sort of turning points in their in their careers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how they were, um, I want to say managed, but that might be too strong, uh, and about Vox itself. So uh, if you were one of these Western intellectuals and uh, you were um, thinking about going to the Soviet Union, how exactly would uh, the trip be arranged and what would you do? Well, one of the things I found was that there were lots of different ways. I mean, it wasn't as centralized as one might suppose because virtually every branch of the Soviet government had a foreign department. And so you could be invited by that branch. Um, In the 20s, at least, this was before the creation of the Soviet tourist agency in Turist, which many visitors to the late Soviet Union remember. Uh, This was, in Turist was founded in in 29. Mm -hmm. So there there became a kind of nascent tourist industry with that. But even before you could go on various touristic routes, uh, um, but you could also go uh, as an invited guest. And that's where Volk and other uh, agencies came in. Um, But Vox especially was concerned with people who were classified as members of the intelligentsia, which was, of course, a Russian-Soviet term, but as it applied to Westerners, it included, for example, technical specialists. So they had a certain leeway in... um, um, in inviting some people, especially those classified as friends of the Soviet Union, those people who were members of the cultural friendship societies that sprang up in almost in all almost all Western countries starting in 23, but they could also receive and guide people who were already um, already getting there from some other way, mm-hmm. and and so. I think it's they had this whole multi-agency system worked out by the mid-20s where uh, workers' delegations went through the Soviet trade unions, foreign communists went through the Communist International, and so on and so forth. And Vox's piece in this puzzle was that they were dealing with cultural figures and those classified as as intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you point out, which I think is uh, very important to remember, is that... uh, in the late teens and the 20s, the people who were in charge of the Soviet Union, so to say, were very cosmopolitan themselves. Uh, you think of Lenin as the obvious case. These are people that spoke European languages, that their cultural reference points were uh, you know, German and English and French. So they, they, um, they may not have known these people, but they had a great sympathy with them. That shaped the whole uh, phenomenon of what I'm writing about. And they did in sometimes. You know, for example, Gorky had started corresponding with Romain <laughs> Roland, who was a, became one of the prominent fellow travelers of Syria in 1915. Yeah. They never met until he visited the Soviet Union, but they had been, you know, there's like two volumes of their, their, their letters to one another. Mm-hmm. I think this, you know, this is an important point, was that, first of all, there, were, there was this old Bolshevik generation of party leaders who had lived in European emigration, and that affected the whole emphasis on Western Europe and to a lesser extent the United States because they often viewed the United States as sort of um, culturally uh, more backward than Europe. And they, they, so they, they had a hierarchy of, of countries in the world that they, and they tended to correspond to this Marxist 
Leninist view that the most industrialized countries were the most advanced, and it fit in with Soviet foreign policy goals, meaning that the great powers were the most important. But they also, so, so the early years, the emphasis really was on um, Western, Central and Western Europe, and Germany, France, and, and Britain especially. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have a wave of Stalinist cadres who had m- new foreign languages to a much lesser degree <clears throat> being promoted up after the late 20s. So that changed things, but the old Bolsheviks and this more cosmopolitan generation sort of remained heavily involved. And when I mentioned it wasn't just the visits, but it was the contacts they had with the Soviet system, there was this whole range of not top party leaders, but some of them were involved, but mm-hmm. like Bukharin and, 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 you know, I would classify Gorky in there too, but, mm-hmm. but a, a level of people who were Soviet intellectuals who were essentially mobilized by the Soviet party state to interact with these Western people. And they had extensive contacts with them in Paris and London in, in their, their own countries. And that, these are the people I call the mediators. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really played a huge role in shaping um, these individual opinion makers' views. Um, and then you have another turning point in 37, when the, 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 the terror has a very strong xenophobic aspect. And that whole generation of the sort of multilingual, uh, multinational, pre-purge, um, you know, Moscow of the 30s really comes to an end in the great terror mm-hmm. starting in 37. And so the whole episode, uh, that's really what provided me a sort of logical end point yep. to my book. I cover the Nazi-Soviet pact and, you know, go down to 41, but that's really an epilogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. So, so tell us a little bit about the way Vox was organized and what it did. Okay, well, it was a very large, it, 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 it actually, I think it, in terms of the party state, it was a sort of mid-level player in, you know, what it didn't, it didn't have the clout that some of the big agencies had. And it was started off by actually Trotsky's sister, <laughs> Olga Komunova, who's married to a Politburo yeah. member, Komunov. It was really her initiative. And at first, I, as I show in the book, you know, she had to overcome a lot of prejudice against bourgeois. This was dealing with bourgeois intellectuals. It was not dealing with workers or mass propaganda. And she really um, shaped the whole enterprise by just force of will. But she was also, of course, very well connected to the top party leadership. So in the 20s, it was sort of involved in a struggle for just um, existence and, um, you know, ratification of its agenda, focusing on the Western uh, intelligentsia and the realm of culture. Um, but that said, it you know, by it was founded out of precursor organizations that existed from the early 20s. So the first influx of what were called bourgeois foreigners, non-communists, non-workers, dated to the famine of the early 20s. And they, they started by basically showing them around, 
guided tours. They had guides and translators. And the reception of foreigners I, it was an extremely important part of this. But they also developed publications that were aimed abroad in, in French, English, and German, as well as Russian. Uh, they developed a photo agency that sold images of the Soviet Union and um, controlled the sort of um, photographic image of the Soviet Union to a large extent because it had a it played a huge role in that. They had a book exchange, which was you know hundreds of thousands of copies of books going to and from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So they, um, you know, and they had various sections focused on film and pedagogy and other branches of basically um, scholarship and culture. So it was a pretty large organization, and in its realm, it was pretty important because I said at least until Inturist was founded, it functioned as the, one of the, the key agencies who actually received foreigners in the uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. So um, did, yeah, I was going to say, did did, did uh, dignitaries, let's call them that, these sort of bourgeois intellectuals, did they contact um, Vox or did Vox contact them or how, how did they oh, meet exactly? Oh. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, they had a certain number of invitations they could issue, and they that cost money. It was like you know any kind of that goes on all the time. You ha- you have a budget that includes certain number of visits, so they could do that. Um, but also in the twenties, it became quite well known among visiting Europeans. It was known as the Communova Institute, mm-hmm. and um, it had the it had the status of a society. So they wanted to create the notion of a kind of a, 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 a non-governmental organization, which was a fiction. It was something of a front organization, but in Moscow. Of course, people in the know knew that it represented the, the party and the state. But, um, but people sought it out because it published guidebooks. It could provide them with guides and translators, and these guides and translators, especially in the 20s, were not necessarily Communist Party members. Mm-hmm. They were people who spoke foreign languages well. They had to know a, a, at least one branch of culture at a high level. So the foreigners actually sought Vox out when they arrived, and that was that was another way that they could connect. It also managed these whole, this whole network of cultural friendship societies that I mentioned. The first one was founded in Germany in 23. And these were basically people who were interested, yes, they were tended to be left-leaning and uh, they were interested in the political system. They were also interested in Soviet culture. They had, you know, in their own specialities that could be physicians, scientists, and so forth, who joined these societies out of interest in what was going on in the Soviet Union. And so they, they used those societies um, as well as kind of recruiting grounds. The other really important function that it did, I think, was that, especially in the 30s, when um, the in, uh, it became a rather different organization, they reported on cultural developments in foreign countries. So they had this whole range of analysts, which is quite fascinating, mm-hmm. um, tracking the important foreigners, what they said and did, but also tracking what the general trends were and there and I would argue that you know I try to argue and that there was a degree of misunderstanding going on there because these analysts were sort of charged with seeing whether the developments were pro-soviet or anti-soviet and that was you know not 
always the best way of interpreting <laughs> what was going on in a given country. So, so I, I try to show that there were often misunderstandings. Some of, some of them were quite comical, too, involving you know language gaps and, and mistranslations and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, Vox put together, or someone put together, I can't remember, a, a kind of list of sites that were supposedly that they were on the tour and they were um, they were condoned by whomever was doing the condoning as places you could show foreigners. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of those? And yes, for sure, because this is a big part of my book, and I think that you know when I when I this is really what what the book is you know, showcases is from the title of the book, and and this is what I kind of came into the topic understanding was that the foreigners were shown only a, a few uh, showcases, and it's true that they developed a standard list of sites, so I call them the sites of socialism, which were supposed to embody the Soviet system in the making or the future of the Soviet system. Those the two were kind of conflated um, in Soviet policy, but um, what I, one interesting thing that I found was that there were actually a whole group of places that were sim- not necessarily created or groomed for foreigners, but were simply deemed uh, good enough to show the foreigners. So these were model institutions of various sorts. And really it was the Vox Department of Reception that that, that put together these sites, but then other agencies like Inturis and others would become involved with it. But one interesting thing I found was that the list was was quite large and quite um, you know, constantly changing. For example, if a collective farm, you know, suddenly changed and, and the mood among the peasants turned changed, they would maybe take it off the list. But of course, they put their best institutions first. And um, I make a distinction between the models, which were simply in places that were designated as models uh, by the so in various hierarchies inside the Soviet Union, for example, model schools within the educational system, and, um, um, factories that were considered top factories, or and showcases. There were a, a smaller number of these that became kind of standard. Stop. One of them was the the secret police's communes for um, juvenile delinquent children, which was a favorite stop after the mid late twenties. Uh, a lot of the most important people were taken there. It was almost considered a privilege that they could get in. You know, if you were an important visitor, you would be taken to these model prisons mm-hmm. and so forth. And but my point is that it, you know it, it's not these places weren't created necessarily for foreign eyes. They already assumed an importance inside the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was a country that wanted to transform almost every aspect of life, but they had very scarce resources. So the solution they they hit on early on within this domestically was to designate models. Mm-hmm. And I try to argue that when the foreigners got interested in them, that kind of reinforced their stature because the foreigners brought a certain prestige and then they could be groomed. And, you know, so there was a kind of mutually reinforcing relationship between what was important inside the country and what was important to show the foreigners. And this is my whole argument about how this 
showing the, the system to outsiders actually shaped the system in mm-hmm. many fundamental ways. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that you point out in the book that made me much more, mm, I want to say, sympathetic to some of the writings of the foreigners and the fellow travelers was that the Soviets, uh, at least in the 20s, didn't exactly try to hide the problems that existed. What, what the argument they tried to make was that they were working on them. And the anecdote that I remember is, is that, you know, there were all these homeless children and they didn't try to hide the homeless children, but then they would take you to a, a home for homeless children and say, look, we're working on this right now. Right. I mean, that's why the sites could be seen as a highly effective method, because it sort of gave them the evidence of their own eyes. Yeah. And they could go back and say, I did see this. It wasn't made up. Right. Um, but the key point is that these places were not representative. Yeah. They were highly anomalous and highly privileged already within the Soviet system. And the people, you know, this is where the book market I mentioned, you know, they want to go back. And this, I think, is the way it's relevant today, because if someone goes, visits a foreign country, and they come back and they say, I only saw a couple of places, but my conclusions are very tenuous, that's not going to um, really be a conclusion that has a broad audience. Well, they, <laughs> no. Well, they did. No. <laughs> you know, they went and said, this is what the Soviet system is. Yeah, and so they right. accepted, and, and this is where the, the conflation between the present and the future comes in, because they saw these places, and they they, they sort of fudged the difference. This is the way the Soviet system works now. It may be unrepresentative now, but this is what everything is going to look like in the future. Mm-hmm. And so the Soviets developed this method of presenting their own country to the outsiders, saying, you know, everything that's still here is a legacy of the Tsarist past, everything that's still problematic. What we have now you know, it's this, these models may be represented, may not be entirely representative, but they're the way everything will look. Mm-hmm. So this is the way the present should be. It's the way the present should look and will look in the future. And this, I argue, this mode of presenting the, the country to the foreigners becomes one of the sources of what becomes in the 30s under Stalin, uh, socialist realism. Life is presented not as it uh, is, but as it should be. Mm-hmm. And this then is applied. It's not the only source of this uh, phenomenon, but it's one of the neglected sources of how they applied this mode of seeing everything in the uh, as it will become uh, to mass Soviet audiences. This is why you know they depict not a, a hungry collective farm in Soviet paintings in the 30s, but tables groaning with food mm-hmm. and. That's um, so. The so what they it's what I call a boomerang. They they tried this these methods out on the foreigners, but it boomeranged back to fundamentally shape their own system. So there's an element of sort of fantasy going on in the in in what becomes Stalinist culture in thirty and, and ideology in the thirties. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in the twenties, we uh, this is my own I guess my own opinion or conclusion. We we don't. I don't think of the people doing the showing as being disingenuous in making this claim. They believed that this was going to happen, didn't they? I think that's, you know, it's one of the hardest things to get at in terms of, you know, what do people really believe? And when you go through all these sources, you you see almost very, very few, you know, References. They don't go around saying we're going to manipulate these farmers. We're going to dupe them and pull the wood over, wool over their eyes. They just can't say that, and they wouldn't say that because some of them actually. I think that these models do provide 
a reason for sort of Soviet true believers to think that in the future these will become the, the more representative. It, it gives them a way of, of you know, this was sort of always the thing for the Bolsheviks. You had to justify harsh measures in the present in in to justify what the what the future would bring. So I think that you're right and this is not there there is a level already in the sources of of utilitarianism. You know, they refer I see some documents where they refer to foreign units, mm-hmm. you know, the number of foreign units <laughs> you need to see in Russia. Or they refer to the um, you know, hard currency foreigners, those foreign foreigners who are basically good for nothing but squeezing mm-hmm. hard currency out of them. So that, that but I I think that element of of utilitarianism is present in almost every um, kind of cultural diplomacy, whether sure. Soviet or not, not necessarily all the time, but it's present in a lot of countries. It's not unique to the Soviets. Um, I do think that there is an element also in the 20s that I sometimes saw of, yes, we may be um, sort of manipulating the foreign opinion, but it's justified in the name of the revolution. Right. The ends justify the means. That's also strong uh, in the 20s. But I think you do see um, a level of cynicism in the Stalinist 1930s. Yeah. Example, Karl Radek, who was top advisor to Stalin, old Bolshevik intellectual, talks about in the case of when Andre um, Gide um, writes a critical report. It's one of the biggest blows for the fellow traveler who goes back and actually writes a quite critical book. He said, this time we did not seduce the girl. That's mm-hmm. what he wrote to Stalin. Yeah. So there is an element of cynicism going on, I think. Yeah. And I think most Soviets by the 30s realized that the, the foreign sympathizers' view of what was going on in the country did not always correspond or certainly diverge greatly from what the insiders knew about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this brings us right to uh, a, a terrific chapter in the book and also a great revelation to me. What is the uh, Petyomkin village dilemma? And Petyomkin villages, you have some interesting news about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I went into this project and everyone told me I would be studying Pachomkin villages. So I, it's, it's, it's the phrase that comes from Prince Grigory Pachomkin in the 18th century. And he, he was a top advisor uh, of Catherine and a sometime lover of Catherine the Great. And he opened up what was called the New Russia. And, you know, the, the notion was that um, he would, he showed Catherine and the other sort of glittering entourage of diplomatic uh, dignitaries who visited uh, Crimea in um, the late 18th century, um, uh, that these were facades of villages, of happy peasant villages that were seen from a distance and sort of pulled the wool over the foreigners' eyes. And now if you talk about... um, Russia at all, and it's one of the things that comes up most constantly, the phrase that this is a a Pachomkin village. Now, I relied entirely on the literature uh, that was already written by scholars in the 18th century, but people like Alexander Panchenko, the late uh, Petersburg academician, but it turns out when you really examine what happened during that time, they, they were talking about People trying to discredit Pachomkin already before the trip were talking about 
these things, and there's no evidence at all that the 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 the, the, the travel uh, group saw these things as anything other than enlightenment spectacle, mm-hmm. a kind of uh, diverting um, show for the for to entertain the foreigners. But I think it's important in the long durée of Western views of the Soviet Union because it fits in with something that also, you know, one of the most important books of the 19th century on Russia, Marquis de Custine's uh, Russian in 1839, sees the whole country as a big facade, yeah. a big Pachomkin village. You rip away the veneer of European civilization, and you have this Tatar lurking underneath, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the, uh, um, became a very important trope. Yeah. And so what you see in the 20s is when they start showing these model sites, there's, um, you know, a resurgence of this discourse on Pachomkin villages. It comes back in a vengeance, especially in the German press. And Germans are among, in the, in the Weimar period, among the, most, the biggest and most influential group of foreigners visiting the country. So what I tried to argue, but, you know, my argument actually is fairly subtle here, because I'm not trying to argue, I'm trying to argue that the Pachomkin village was originally a myth, but there was also a reason it was one that became one of the most long-standing myths, which was that it reflected certain elements of both pre-revolutionary Russian attitudes towards foreign visitors, that there was this exaggerated um, choreography going on already, you know, when Kustin visited, and there was this exaggerated concern with Western opinion, whether and trying to convince the Westerners. Um, and also, you know, there was a dictatorship. There was under Nikolaevin as well as Stalin's Russia that created a certain chilling effect of what people could say. You know, so that element is there and explains why the myth was so long-standing. But what what people missed when they talked about it in the twenties was, first of all, when you say Pachomkin village in the twenties it really implies that there's this long ancient Russian tradition of pulling the wool over people's eyes through facades. But they, so it doesn't recognize that a lot of what the Soviets were doing was actually new. It wasn't necessarily connected to Russian. There were a lot of aspects of this Soviet system that were unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that these models were not in fact facades. They were, existing institutions that had importance inside the country. However, it did reflect a widespread sense in the 20s and 30s that what the, the models that they were being shown were not, in fact, representative. Mm-hmm. And that was, in fact, the case, and it reflected a certain strain of skepticism uh, and criticism of, of on the part of the foreigners, which I think has been downplayed in the literature on Western sympathy for the Soviet Union, because the sympathizers often, as I said, censor themselves, but there was also this whole group of people who were either skeptical or hostile who also visited. So I tried to cover the entire range Mm -hmm. of responses, not just the praise, not just the fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. This business about the Potemkin villages is... uh... It's a, it's, it's a curious but typical thing because these national stereotypes are, are very sticky and they almost are always mythological. They, they serve some function for the observer, although they may have 
pretty much nothing to do with the observed. And you, you can just kind of reel them off. You know, uh, Jews are greedy and Germans are fat and sausage-eating militarists. And, you know, French-eating, as a student of mine said, are cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And, you know, I mean, they, these are just, they have no connection to reality, really. But, but they're just so sticky. You could always bring them up and kind of get a, a wry smile out of somebody as if they know what they're talking about. And they'll never go away. They just will never go away. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why, I mean, what you say, I think, you know, sometimes there's a kernel of truth, you know. I mean, I, I lived in Germany, and the German efficiency is yeah. something of a myth, but you, I would hesitate to say it's entirely a myth. Uh-huh. But the notion that entire nations have a character, <laughs> yeah. of course, you know, that's something that was still strong in the 20s. I mean, that's something to remember. Yeah. That, that was something still, they, people still talked about national character and someone like Dreiser even attributed gave it a racial component that was mm-hmm. of a Slavic sure. race sure. as he said so there's that element there but the one thing I that's why I think this cultural diplomacy is not the same thing as propaganda in the sense that it's not this material designed to uh, um, affect people by sending say certain propagandistic things abroad. It involves exchanges. It involves visits. It involves cultural institutions. And then that involves not just the political views of both sides assessing one another, but also this kind of cultural interaction. And people drew on you, you know, you can't, they, they, they sometimes saw through these stereotypes and they sometimes develop lasting connections. And this goes even for some of the guides who I found, you know, they, their job was to show the Soviet Union in the best possible light, but they, they took that job because they wanted to work with foreigners mm-hmm. and they, they developed sort of unofficial uh, connections with a lot of the visitors. And these became more difficult to do, you know, especially after the purges, but, mm-hmm. but you know, into, re- into the 30s. And so that's, I think, part of this story is that it's not all about stereotypes. Yeah, no, that's right. It's funny because my, when I think of a Patyomkin village, when it, when it appears in my mind, what appears is uh, what, what Americans call a storefront. If you drive around Midwestern towns, and their heydays were in the 1890s and early teens, you'll see on Main Street storefronts. And these are one-story wooden buildings that are made up to look like they are two- or three-story stone buildings. You see them everywhere. They're just pretension. That's all that they are. <laughs> you know, it's like we yeah, Americans. I mean, that kind of thing. You know, I, I, I asked an American historians and people work on other countries, do they have anything like these model institutions? And people said no. I mean, there are models in other countries. The example I give in my book has to do with, you know, Romanian showcasing of, 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 of agricultural institutions. But, you know, when take the United States, I mean, did, was, Tocqueville was perhaps shown the most, the things that one might, you know, were important to see or, were, you know, visitors like him, they were shown things that were designed to impress or would likely impress. But no one had this, this network of standard stops. And, you know, they, they were... It's important to remember that the the itineraries were, to a certain extent, controlled. There were certain parts of the country that were closed off and so forth. So I think what you're, you know, so the models are themselves unprecedented, but of course the Pachomkin villages as such, as facades, are also something of a myth, even for the Soviet period. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the end of the book and uh, this great transformation that occurs 
in the 1930s under Stalin when um, suddenly things go from work in progress to perfect? Yeah, well, what I try to argue is that when you look at Soviet attitudes towards Western countries in the 20s, it was a kind of a mix because they wanted to showcase what they called their achievements, but they also sort of took it for granted that they would take the best, that their Soviet socialism would sort of build on uh, the best elements of, of the most advanced Western countries. And this was Lenin's view. It came out of, you know, the Marxist notion that socialism would grow out of capitalism. And so they still took for granted that, um, you know, they had something to learn from the Western countries. And this is why Olga Kamyanova was committed to Volk. She thought it would have a beneficial, and people like her, there were a lot of others, that would have a, interacting with these Western intellectuals and cultural figures would have a beneficial effect on Soviet development. She, she, she was quite a hard-headed person, but she somehow deep down believed that what she was doing was also important for the Soviets. But by the 30s, you see this Stalinist reversal, which I thought was something that needed to be explained. The notion that everything Soviet is superior, not just the political system, not just even the economy, which is now after the, you know, the planned economy is now presented as superior, but also by the 30s in terms of cultural terms. Soviet culture is superior. And you see this really um, coming out. And I think it, it's an important feature of Stalinism. And, you know, that you see this in World War II when it's the Nazis also have this notion of defending Western the civilization and Europe from the, uh, the Jews and the Bolsheviks. But there's this kind of contest between these two systems for... Um, for supremacy, and both believe themselves to be superior. And so, you know, the notion of superiority is also present in some forms of nationalism, but this was a part of the official Stalinist ideology that pervaded, um, you know, the whole uh, country in the 1930s. Um, so I think that this is a shift that, that, that has to do a lot with the nature of Stalinism. Um, and it has to do with the nature of the foreign visitors change, the, their, the, the, the nature of the foreign visits, I should say. The most important Western visitors now were given audiences with Stalin. Their visits were treated as almost, you know, state-level um, diplomatic visits, incredibly elaborate preparation. And the foreigners who then still praised the Soviet Union, and they were many of them who were in this sort of club of what we'll call friend of the Soviet Union, friends of the Soviet Union, they were celebrated within Stalinist culture and their books were translated in the millions because it reaffirmed the superiority of the Soviet system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so their life stories were presented to millions of Soviets as a sort of path towards recognizing the superiority of the Soviets. And this played a big um, role in, I think there was a sort of neglected international dimension to Stalinism and to the early Soviet period that, you know, this was, it was had, again, huge domestic ramifications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that moment was also the uh, point of origin for a great number of uh, jokes that circulated in the Soviet Union after Stalin's death. The one I'm thinking about is Soviet wristwatch. 
largest wristwatch in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see those jokes already appearing, you know, if we can catch up with the West, can we stay there? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, but I will, one thing I want to say, though, one, you know, this, this has its origins in Stalin's vow to overtake the Western countries or, or perish. Yeah. And so a, an inherent claim of superiority was there from the beginning of Stalinist industrialization. But I want to, the other thing that Stalinism brought in the mid-30s was a greater flexibility for dealing with non-communist Westerners. And this was the popular front. It ratified communist party alliances with non-communist parties in the Western countries, but it also cleared the way for a more flexible approach to these non-communist visitors. And so it's ironic, and I see this as two kind of competing tendencies going on in the 30s. One was the security mania, uh, the, 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 host, uh, the stress on hostile capitalist encirclement, the fear of foreign contagion, and so on and so forth. And then the other is this notion that if we can just reach the foreigners, we will convince them and we have this great opportunity to uh, convince outsiders. And both these things actually are intensified during the mid-30s, the popular front. And so all these old Bolshevik intellectuals whom I mentioned are actually activized by the mid-30s moment, and they're flitting about Europe. They're heavily involved in anti-fascist culture of the um, uh, of the of the Popular Front era. They are reporting to mass Soviet audiences about developments in Europe. Ironically, as the country is sealed off from Soviets going out to a much greater extent. Um, but then this intensification of vigilance, as it's called, is also going on leading up to the purges. So you see these two tendencies within Stalinism sort of coexisting, mm -hmm. but then there's an increasing tension between them. And I would argue that 37, the moment when purging and the show trials took place and it lost a huge amount of West, you know, of the Soviet Union lost a huge amount of traction in Western countries and foreign public opinion as a result of that. This really represented the moment of, you know, the, 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 the security element, the, the xenophobic element represented, especially in the secret police uh, triumph within the Soviet Union. And so, you know, things do continue. It's not the end of Soviet cultural diplomacy, and there will certainly be a resurgence in World War II with the Grand Alliance, and then also especially in the fall of the 50s. But it, it's an end of an era in a certain respect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say that we've run out of time. We could talk for another hour, and I mean that seriously. I'm sure we could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thought we were just getting going. Yeah, here, I'm sure we could talk for another hour. <laughs> no, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk about, you know, one's own work in this way. And, yeah, uh, yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. We've been glad to have you on the show. Why don't you uh, 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 conclude the interview by answering our traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I've launched another project, which I hope will not take me quite as many years, <laughs> but it's actually another big one. And I've been talking about Germany quite a bit, and this is where I had to look, I looked at German visitors, and I was fascinated to find in this book that there were a number of far-right, yeah. even fascist intellectuals who visited the Soviet Union and were 
interested in elements of Stalinism. And so my German got a lot better, and my <laughs> um, I lived in Germany as a result of you know writing on this book for over a year in Berlin. And also I became interested in this whole interaction between Germany and the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So my next book is on World War II, and it's about the... I think it's called Smolensk under Nazi and Soviet rule. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Smolensk oh, yeah. was the subject of a classic study. Merle Fainsaw, yeah. Merle Fainsaw. Yeah, that's right. In 1957, it was the, old, the Nazis had seized the Smolensk archive yeah. and brought it back to Germany for anti-communist propaganda purposes, and then it fell into the hands yeah. of the United States after the war, and it was the only documents we had, original documents on the Stalinist period for many, many decades. Uh-huh. And many people studied Smolensk, but then people forgot about it after 91. And now, of course, we've got a lot more sources on, on Stalinism in Smolensk. But I'm starting with what hasn't been studied before, which is the Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. And then trying to ask, what did the Nazi occupation regime, what did they take from Stalinism, and what did they mm-hmm. change? And so that's my starting point. Mm-hmm. Well, it's yeah. going to take me even more into the depths of the 20th century yeah. age of extremes. Yeah, you boy, know, as yeah. Bomb called yeah it. that's right. Well, it's a fantastic project. And, and uh, you know, Russia under um, Soviet rule is still a very, I think, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, I, I think it's still worth reading. But um, I don't know what Soviet uh, experts think about it. But uh, well, I'd recommend David Engerman's book, which I'm uh, called um, uh, "Know Your Enemy," which really puts it into the context. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. still a classic. Yeah, it's still, still a classic. classic. Yeah, I'm using it in my course in the spring. Are you really? Wow. The one on Smolensk under Soviet rule. Yeah. he wrote two books. He wrote "How Russia Is Ruled" and "Smolensk under Soviet Sounds Rule." That's right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we've been talking with. Uh, Michael David Fox today about his terrific book showcasing the great experiment cultural diplomacy and Western visitors to the Soviet Union 1921 to 1941 Misha thanks so much for being on the show thanks Marshall. Okay, take care alright bye bye you've been listening to an interview with Michael David Fox about his new book showcasing the great experiment cultural diplomacy and Western visitors to the Soviet Union 1921 to 1941 I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History I hope you have a great week.